are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Morgan Martin, your co-founder of The Loop Podcast. So today's episode is about lymphedema, and it is very educational, very in-depth, and very long. And so for this reason, we have divided it into two parts. So this is part one. Please do not forget to go ahead and listen to part two. Thank you to Magnus, Dr. Humsey, and also Dr. Shu for putting this episode together. It is excellent, and I found it very educational for not only trainees, but I think also patients will get um, a lot of information out of this that sometimes we don't really hear a lot about lymphedema. Also keep in mind, this episode was recorded in October for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So we all know that lymphedema is very prominent in breast cancer patients. So we hope that we can bring some awareness to this topic. And thank you for being patient with us. Our team has been very busy. And so we are posting now in time for you to learn for in-service exams. So please enjoy and let's know what you think. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Loop Podcast. I'm Magnus Chun, a medical student at Tuning, and I'll be helping host today. This is actually my second episode hosting, and ever since uh, my last episode, I, I couldn't wait to be back with you all again. And in recognition of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we'll be talking about a common post-surgical complication in breast cancer patients, lymphedema, or rather, secondary lymphedema. To discuss this topic, we are very fortunate to be joined today by not one, but two guest hosts, Dr. Kyle Shu and Dr. Christopher Holmesy. Dr. Kyle Shu is an um, assistant professor of plastic surgery, hand surgery, and microsurgery in the Division of Plastic Surgery at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. He earned his medical degree at Georgetown University and completed his residency training in general surgery and plastic surgery at St. Louis University. He then went on to complete a fellowship in hand surgery and microsurgery at the Bunk Clinic in San Francisco. Recently, he was a faculty member at the St. Louis University School of Medicine, where he developed the only comprehensive lymphedema center in the St. Louis region. He has since relocated and now is the current director of the lymphedema center at University of Miami. Dr. Shu, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, I'm really honored to have Dr. Sue here today. We actually met virtually during the COVID era and worked on a microsurgery literature review project together. Uh, I can truly say that he is an expert in the field of lymphedema and microsurgery. Uh, we also have Dr. Christopher Holmesy joining us today. Dr. Holmesy is an assistant professor of the surgery in, uh, in the Division of Plastic Surgery at Tufts University School of Medicine. He earned his medical degree at the Lebanese University Faculty of Medical Sciences and then completed his residency training in general surgery at Tufts Medical Center. He went on to complete his fellowship in plastic surgery at Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana. He has treated many patients with lymphedema in his clinic and has research experience in the field of lymphedema. In fact, Dr. Holmesy was the first person to introduce me to the field of plastic surgery, as well as the topic of lymphedema. So I'm truly appreciative of him being here today. Dr. Holmesy, how are you doing today? Doing great, Magnus. Thank you so much for your introduction and very, very pleased to be here. Awesome. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. So studies have shown that up to 65% of women undergoing treatment for breast cancer, such as axillary lymph node dissection, and mastectomy suffer from lymphedema. 
And, and so when you break down the word lymphedema, you know, you get lymph, which represents the lymphatic system, and edema, which is swelling secondary to excess fluid in the body's tissue. And obviously, this is just uh, an oversimplification. So can you tell us what lymphedema actually is and, and how it's formed? Sure. So uh, this is a very, very important question. And I might take uh, maybe a few minutes to discuss uh, the definition and the word lymphedema for the audience. So lymphedema is a term that describes a symptom or a clinical presentation. And to understand what lymphedema is, we really should first talk a little bit about the lymphatic system. We're all familiar with, you know, the arterial system and the venous system through which blood circulates. But similarly, there is a third vascular system that sometimes we don't really talk about or we don't really study much in medical school, but it's the uh, lymphatic system. And through this lymphatic system, the lymphatic fluid or lymph circulates. So this lymphatic system is actually composed of lymphatic organs, such as, such as lymph nodes, tonsils, the thymus, and the spleen. And all these organs are connected via a network of lymphatic vessels that run actually parallel to the venous system. So the lymphatic system basically drains the interstitial fluid from the cells and the tissues into lymphatic vessels and all the way back into the venous system, into the systemic circulation. Therefore, when, quote, lymph edema develops, what practically happens is lymphatic stasis that is caused by an obstruction in the flow of lymph within, within that lymphatic uh, system, which eventually will cause slowing or complete arrest in the lymphatic flow. And what follows is actually that lymphatic fluid, instead of going from the tissues retrograde into the venous system, it basically gets backed up into the interstitial compartment, ultimately leading to tissue swelling. And that's the, quote, edema portion of the term lymphedema. Um, and that being said, uh, lymphedema is really the common denominator or the endpoint phenotype, if you will, and it can be classified as either primary lymphedema or secondary lymphedema. I know today we're focused on secondary lymphedema, but I think just to kind of, for the sake of completeness, I think it's very important just to touch on the subject of primary and secondary lymphedema. So primary lymphedema is really caused by a developmental or genetic abnormality that's actually intrinsic to the lymphatic system. And the most common cause of primary lymphedema are deficits in the number and or the function of the collecting lymphatics. And these abnormalities are likely present at birth and can worsen over time. And some examples include like congenital lymphedema, such as an entity called Milroy disease, lymphedema precox, which means like an early lymphedema or lymphedema tarda that could be maybe like in the 20, 30 years old of, uh, years of age. And other, on the other hand, secondary lymphedema uh, results from, as I said earlier, an obstruction or an injury to the lymphatic system. And as its name implies, this injury is secondary. So it's secondary to something else. And it's therefore acquired from other factors. The question then becomes, what are these factors that are causing the secondary lymphedema? If you look at worldwide, the most common worldwide cause of secondary lymphedema is infection by roundworms, such as Fusheraria bancrofti, which causes the disease filariasis. 
Uh, otherwise, in Europe or in the Western countries here in the United States, most patients who develop lymphedema do so because of iatrogenic injury to the lymphatic system uh, during, for example, cancer treatment, specifically breast cancer. Other cancers that can be associated with lymphedema are like melanoma, urogynecological tumors. And uh, to be clear, it's not the cancer per se that causes lymphedema. Sometimes it does if you have a severe advanced cancer that actually blocks the lymphatic channels. But it's mostly what we talk about secondary lymphedema. We're kind of referring to the surgeries that are performed that are that cause that lymphedema. And usually these are surgeries that uh, injure the lymph node, just like sentinel lymph node biopsy, axillary lymph node dissection. And when you disrupt the lymphatic system in these surgery, in these surgeries, you will lead uh, the patient to have an interruption in their lymphatic flow, and therefore secondary lymphedema will develop. So sorry, it's a long answer, but I thought just to set the stage for the audience that they don't have to think that when we say lymphedema, just a one and done entity. That's that's wonderful. Thank you so much for the explanation. You know, especially it's it's important to, to differentiate between primary and, and secondary lymphedema. I'm not sure that the audience will have a great understanding now of of lymphedema. So, you know, to kind of go off of that, what what kind of patient population do you see typically have lymphedema? Uh, you know, we're probably sp specifically talking about the upper extremities here. Yeah, Magnus. So, um, in my in my practice, I see patients with both primary and secondary lymphedema. However, for the upper extremities, the most common patient I see is secondary lymphedema after axillary dissection to treat breast cancer. So just like Dr. Holmesy said, it's a damage to the lymphatic system due to surgery to treat breast cancer. Um, I also see patients who have secondary lymphedema after, for example, melanomas or sarcomas. Um, but typically in the upper extremity, the most common patient I see are breast cancer patients. Wonderful. And, and then when we see, you know, a patient with swelling, uh, you could, there could be a lot of differential diagnosis to that. So, you know, what is our, what's on our differential diagnosis and what are some specific clinical characteristics of lymphedema? So Magnus, this is really an excellent question. Uh, and, you know, when I discuss with residents or medical students uh, about the topic of lymphedema, I always say just not like, not every chest pain is myocardial infarction. The same thing, not every limb swelling means there's lymphedema. So as plastic surgeons, we're not only good technicians in the OR, but we should also be excellent clinicians. And I really say that because we need to always try to understand in what context did the limb swelling occur and develop and to rule out other conditions that can mimic lymphedema. Now, to be fair, in real life, and Dr. Shu probably would agree with that, you know, we are consultants, so we don't really see these patients like walking through our door. They usually have been worked up somewhere else and come to our office. So they might, may have been evaluated by primary care physician or other medical subspecialties and are referred to us for evaluation or quote evaluation for lymphedema. But I think it's our responsibility to perform a thorough history because it all depends really as I said, on the context of, of how the swelling started and progressed. So there are many conditions that can cause some sort of extremity edema. But the most common uh, ones that come to my mind really are, number one, 
infectious or inflammatory causes such as cellulitis or thrombophlebitis. Uh, DVT, deep venous thrombosis, may cause uh, uh, arm or lower extremity swelling. Right heart failure, which hopefully these patients will not show up to your to your door as a plastic surgeon. But again, this is just to kind of give a almost like a comprehensive list. Right heart failure could cause bilateral lower uh, extremity edema. End stage liver or kidney failure could do so. Vascular anomalies such as venous insufficiency especially in the lower extremity. Obesity is a big one. You know, people uh, with high BMI uh, from, you know, their body habitus and, you know, can some kind of extrinsic compression uh, of the lymphatics can have uh, something that could mimic lymphedema. And finally, an entity that we always try to differentiate from lymphedema is LIP edema, L-I-P edema, which is a very important um, entity to differentiate uh, from lymphedema uh, itself. Um, now, when it comes to clinical characteristics of lymphedema, this all depends on the stage, severity, and chronicity of the lymphedema. So if you're evaluating a patient with a recent onset of lower extremity or upper extremity edema, and eventually it's lymphedema, they may have a different presentation from a patient who's been living with lymphedema for many, many years. And here, I think it's important to discuss uh, some kind of classification, kind of because we always like classification in the medical world because it helps us understand things and sometimes also guide our, our treatment. So there is a classification by the International Society of Lymphology, or short for ISL. And it's a staging system uh, that is commonly used by the medical community and it's based on both subjective and objective symptoms of edema. And briefly, it doesn't start by one, by zero. So the first stage is stage zero, and uh, it's also known as latent lymphedema. And it actually represents an impairment of the lymphatic flow after some kind of injury without a clinically visible swelling or edema. So it's almost like a subclinical stage that's starting to brew. And then you go to stage one, where you have spontaneously reversible uh, lymphedema uh, that usually resolve with elevation or compression. And stage two is a spontaneously irreversible lymphedema. So we will go from subclinical to spontaneously reversible to spontaneously irreversible lymphedema, which is a progression of the lymphedema and does not really um, respond to uh, compressive or complete decongestive therapy. And finally, stage three, or lymphostatic lymphedema or lymphostatic elephantiasis is a severe or irreversible swelling with actually deposition of adipose tissue and fibrosis, resulting in a thickening of the skin and soft tissue. And sometimes you see hyperkeratosis where, you know, the skin now becomes thick and nodular. But typically, typically, Lymphedema is characterized by limb heaviness, swelling, tissue thickening, paresthesia, recurrent cellulitis, because now the lymphatic system, there's a problem in the lymphatic system, and we all know that, you know, in the lymphatic system, lymphocytes circulate, so it's your immune system, so you might end up with some recurrent cellulitis that can be accompanied occasionally by, occasionally by uh, localized pain. Initially, you get some pitting edema as part of the presentation. As I said, as you progress, then you progress to a non-pitting edema. 
Uh, and on physical exam, uh, there's just a one interesting um, sign for those who like to memorize all the signs that we learn in medical school. There's something called the stemmer sign or a positive stemmer sign. And it's actually just simply if the examiner tries to pinch with the thumb and the index finger or between his thumb and the index finger, if you try to pinch the dorsum of the toes or dorsum of the fingers, really unable to do that. And that's just, again, in the right context, in the right patient, it's a positive predictor of someone who has lymphedema. That's an excellent breakdown of, of the differential diagnosis. I know, you know, as a medical student, uh, we always have to present our differential diagnosis of our of our patients that we see. And and for you to break down it like that, I think that's very helpful for our listeners. So, you know, to follow up on this, and I know we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but, you know, what what is the clinical course or progress of lymphedema formation in a patient? Yeah, that's a great question, Magnus. So when I talk about lymphedema to patients, to medical students, to residents, I think of lymphedema, I say it's the three F's. So it's fluid, fat, and fibrosis. So just like Dr. Holmes was discussing, initially it's a fluid problem. So patients have damage to the lymphatic system, whether it's trauma or infection or surgery for cancer, they get a development of fluid, which causes the edema in their legs or arms. And initially it's pitting edema, meaning there's actual fluid in the tissues. So when you put your thumb or finger against the limb, you get pitting, meaning uh, you can see your fingerprint in the leg because you're displacing the fluid. However, as the disease or condition progresses, uh, it causes inflammation and these different uh, pro-fibrotic cytokines and, and inflammatory markers causes your body to deposit fat and fibrosis in the limb. So initially, it's a fluid problem. However, as the disease progresses, it get, the fluid gets replaced with fat and fibrosis, and it actually becomes non-pitting edema. So every time, I know in medical school, we always think of you know, venous disease as pitting edema and lymphedema as non-pitting edema, but truthfully, lymphedema is pitting initially, but becomes non-pitting as the disease progresses in the end-stage lymphedema. And if there's a nice article from um, from Sloan Kettering, where they, they actually look at the different stages of lymphedema and how the lymphatic vessels change. Initially, it's, it's a normal lymphatic vessel, which is uh, stage zero. And then as the disease or condition progresses, the first, the vessel becomes dilated or ectatic because there's backup of fluid. And then as it progresses further, the vessels become contracted and sclerotic. And at end-stage lymphedema, there's no fluid even going through the lymphatic vessel anymore because it's, it's non-functional. Um, and lastly, the fat and fibrosis. So initially, patients don't have much fat or fibrosis, but as disease progresses, there's a ton of fat that is deposited in the limb. And uh, when you perform surgery on these patients who have late-stage lymphedema, you, you'll see how much fat and just... Um, and scar tissue that is deposited in the limb. And that will later on discuss the different treatment options for these patients, which will be, a, uh, we, we, which we can talk about later. That's great. So, you know, I, I understand that there are certain risk factors that could increase a patient's likelihood of getting lymphedema. 
you know, physiologically speaking, any condition that decreases venous return can't allow patients to become more prone to lymphedema, you know, including venous snake ulcers or chronic venous insufficiency. Is that correct? So, yeah, any, any condition that decreases venous return or any condition actually that has an impaired venous return will lead to an increased pressure in the venous system. And as I mentioned initially, my the first question, when you have pressure in the venous system, you will eventually have an ultimate point of a increased pressure in the lymphatic channels because these are basically draining into the venous system. So if there's any physiological or anatomic venous obstruction, the lymphatic fluid will not be able to drain from the lymphatic system to the venous system, which then will cause lead or lead or cause lymphedema. So the obvious risk factors uh, for secondary lymphedema are factors that cause, as Dr. Shu implied and said, injury to the lymphatics, which happens during surgery, such as central lymph node biopsy, axial lymph node dissection, uh, during uh, the stages of treatment for breast cancer. But there are also actually other risk factors that may predispose to lymphedema. And I can think uh, maybe or four or five main risk factors that uh, can be associated uh, with lymphedema. One is obesity. And uh, specifically, uh, you know, by definition, BMI greater than 30. And you know, patients uh, or individual with obesity or BMI greater than 30 may have about two to five time increase uh, in the risk of developing lymphedema compared to individual uh, with a normal BMI. And there's actually level one evidence derived from, you know, randomized controlled prospective trials demonstrating that weight loss or resistant exercise significantly decreases upper limb volume independent of any other additional intervention. And this is further supported by other uh, prospective studies showing that the incidence of lymphedema is actually increased about two-folds in non-obese uh, patients with a sedentary lifestyle, suggesting that exercise alone can modify lymphatic function, which is, I think, pretty interesting. Number two is radiation. So radiation therapy, especially in the setting of, you know, adjuvant radiation or neoadjuvant radiation with surgery, increases the risk of developing lymphedema also up to three to five times in patients who undergo extensive soft tissue resection or lymph node dissection. Um, number three is infection is a risk factor. So the theory behind this to why infection can be a risk factor to lymphedema is that the infection can injure and damage the lymphatic system. So again, back to the same idea of what could damage the lymphatic system. And this further contribute to the impairment in the lymphatic uh, drainage capacity if you have an infection. Um, number four, aging. So interestingly enough, older patients are at higher risk of developing lymphedema. And a study, I believe, out of Australia um, looked at you know, breast cancer patient survivors. And they found that patients who were older than 50 were about three, 3.1 times more likely to develop lymphedema following an axial lymph node dissection 
as compared to those who were younger than 50 years of age. However, it's still debated in the community whether really age is a real risk factor for lymphedema or not, but that's just worth mentioning. And number five, as we all know, if you're predisposed genetically, that's a very high risk factor for you. So some genetic mutations are associated with primary lymphedema. However, there are some studies that show that these same mutations that cause primary lymphedema may also increase your risk at developing secondary lymphedema, possibly by the mechanism of decreasing the baseline lymphatic function. So these are, I think, the risk factors that are worth kind of mentioning in general that are associated with lymphedema. Wow, I, I didn't know that there were so many different risk factors, but you know, so so that there are so many risk factors, you would think that you know it would be very well known. But but in reality, you know, how well understood is lymphedema, such as the natural history or the available interventions? You know, do primary care physicians know to refer these patients to plastic surgeons? Yeah, so Magnus, so for lymphedema, if, when I think back to my medical school at Georgetown, we didn't really spend much time on lymphedema. We maybe spent one day talking about the lymphatic system and lymphedema. And, and I remember learning, hey, there's only one option, which is compression, and, and that's it. We didn't really spend more time than that. And I think that is a um, one problem in our medical training is that we don't spend enough time on the lymphatic system. We spend so much time on the arterial system and, and the different vascular diseases and, and cardiovascular diseases, as well as the venous system, but we forget to touch on the lymphatic system, which is so important. Um, so then in, in my plastic surgery residency, I remember we, we discussed lymphedema and, and some of the options, but um, at that time, a lot of the surgical options were not mainstream, at least not in the United States. Uh, we, we discussed some of the options, but we, I remember learning that they didn't work very well. It was not until my fellowship at the Bunky Clinic when I started to perform these procedures and notice how amazing these procedures were in treating lymphedema. I still remember I had a patient who came to us with... Um, secondary lymphedema of her arm after breast cancer. She also had uh, injury to her, her hand, so she needed what's called tendon transfers. So at the same time, we performed these lymphovenous bypass procedures, which is one of the procedures we, we, we performed to treat lymphedema. And the thing that she was happiest about was that her lymphedema was better, not because her fingers were moving better and she was able to use her hand better, but that her lymphedema was better and how how much better she was able to use her arm because there was less swelling, less pain. Um, and she had just had improved quality of life. So one of our goals as plastic surgeons is to educate our community, educate our um, referral, refer, uh, referring physicians, educating our physician, our uh, patients on lymphedema and how to treat it, how to properly diagnose it, how to properly treat it, and um, what are the different options that are, that are available to our patients? The other thing that we need to do is to educate our lawmakers and, and, and Congress so that they can pass laws so that insurance can cover these procedures. A lot of these procedures are still known as experimental uh, by these different insurance companies, but there is you know, 10 to 20 years of data showing that these procedures work. And a lot of these patients' surgeries are not being covered by insurance companies. 
So I think the most important thing we need to do is to educate, educate the medical students, educate the physicians, educate our patients, and also educate our lawmakers and insurance companies that there's different options other than non-surgical treatment for lymphedema. That's excellent. Yeah, no, I remember, you know, uh, in, in medical school, I, I, I don't quite remember too much learning about the lymphatic system. So I think that's a great, uh, great point. So, you know, to add on to that, I understand that there are very specific lymphedema clinics that take on these patients. But is there, you know, currently a scarcity of these clinics that increases the barrier uh, to treatment for lymphedema patients? So, you know, Magnus, this is a tricky question to answer because if you had asked me this question maybe, what, five years ago or maybe five to ten years ago, I would have immediately and like without any doubt said absolutely there's scarcity of like clinics that treat lymphedema. Now, because there has been a better understanding, as Dr. Shu was mentioning, you know, like as doctors, we understand better what lymphedema is and how to treat it. We're seeing more and more of so what we call like those lymphatic centers or we have like lymphedema or lymphatic centers of excellence around the world and in the United States. And, you know, these centers usually involve not only us as plastic surgeon, but you have, you know, general surgeon or the breast surgeon who, you know, also need to understand how to treat and expose uh, the lymphatic system in the axilla, for example, and, you know, try to help us uh, not to be very traumatic uh, to the to this tissue, your vascular surgeon, especially for the lower extremity lymphedema patient, cardiologists are part of the team, radiologists that read lymphocentigraphy or the magnetic resonance lymphography images, physical and lymphatic therapists that are actually certified lymphatic therapists that uh, help these patients during their non-surgical phase of the treatment and actually after surgery because this is a lifetime a commitment on part of the patient. So these patients really require a team that's not only a surgeon or not only a, you know, primary care or internist. It's actually six, seven subspecialties. And I think the main barrier right now for the treatment of lymphedema uh, is the incomplete understanding or used to be the incomplete understanding of this disease entity, a disease entity. However, I think with the development of microsurgery, super microsurgery, these really fancy, powerful microscopes uh, uh, that we have, uh, have actually narrowed uh, this knowledge gap uh, and uh, was one of, if not the major factor in the rapid rise and in the interest in surgical treatment of lymphedema, which now you'll see there are people who are going after their training in plastics, microsurgery, and doing just like a dedicated year of lymphatic surgery. But if you look at the big picture, I do think the number of clinics that comprehensively tackle and address lymphedema is still relatively low. But I hope that in the next 5-10 years, lymphedema clinic will be so available to all patients uh, around the country that it will be just like someone having a burn center, like a, like a hospital having a burn center or a wound center would be like a lymphatic or lymphedema clinic. It would be a well-known entity and very well accepted. 
Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I know at, in New Orleans, where, where I'm at, uh, we actually only have one lymphedema uh, center um, in, in downtown New Orleans so far, and, and it's still trying to build up. So uh, I, I absolutely agree with you that, that we should definitely you know, have more awareness of this and, and try to build up more uh, of these clinics. So we you know, talked about this so far already, and we, we kind of touched on it. Um, but what are, what are the treatment options for lymphedema? Yeah, so um, if I break down the treatment options for lymphedema, you can break them down into two groups, uh, non-surgical treatments and surgical treatments of lymphedema. The way I think about it is uh, when I describe it to my patients, I think of um, a traffic jam because I'm in Miami and there's traffic jams all the time. So the patients understand that uh, analogy. And the way I think about non-surgical treatment, it's what you're trying to do is you have a traffic jam and you're trying to direct traffic through the traffic jam. So either, you know, finding new pathways around the traffic jam or actually trying to direct the traffic through the traffic jam. For the surgical treatments of lymphedema, I think of a traffic jam and what you're trying to provide as a surgeon is new pathways around the traffic jam, like a, like a bypass. So um, to start with surgical, non-surgical treatments, all patients should undergo non-surgical treatment. That is the first line treatment for lymphedema. Uh, this includes uh, exercise, diet, weight loss. As we know, obesity is a risk factor for uh, lymphedema. Um, and also going to a certified lymphedema therapist. All my patients have a certified lymphedema therapist before I would even consider surgery. These, these are specialists who are either physical therapists or occupational therapists who have extra training in taking care of patients with lymphedema. And they are the traffic jam. They, what they do is they direct traffic. They try to help move fluid around the traffic jam. Uh, they do this through uh, what's called uh, complete decongestive therapy or manual lymphatic decompression. Um, it's a special type of massage that you're, you teach patients to uh, push the fluid around the traffic jam so that it can be relieved from the limb. And these therapies work very well. Uh, patients who undergo these non-surgical therapies have a significant improvement in their swelling uh, of their of their uh, lymphedemis extremity. Other non-surgical treatments include pneumatic pumps, which are um, these garments that the patients wear once a, one for an hour per day at home that help move fluid um, around through the limb. Uh, also, to maintain the uh, the fluid decompression, patients wear compression literally twenty four seven, almost all the time. And that is important to maintain the, the volume reduction that they get from these uh, lymphatic therapy um, and, and uh, decompression therapies. So once patients have either plateaued from uh, non-surgical therapy or, or they want, um, or they're interested in improving their quality of life, because if you look at studies, patients spend 40 to 70 hours managing their lymphedema and uh, it really takes up a lot of their time. So then there's surgical options for lymphedema, which are, I break them down into physiologic procedures and excisional procedures. So early on, when it's a fluid problem, you can provide the physiologic 
to try to improve or fix the lymphatic system. And later on in the disease, when there is more fat and fibrosis, then you can provide the excisional procedures. So for the fluid procedures, there's two main procedures. One is called lymphovenous bypass. The other is vascularized lymph node transplant. So what a lymphovenous bypass is, is it's a, it's a, it's a technique that uh, uses uh, microsurgery and what we call super microsurgery, where we connect a lymphatic, a functioning lymphatic, and connect it to a vein under the microscope using very fine suture, uh, suture that's thinner than your eyelash. So we in 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 um, in surgery we call it we use what's either ten o or eleven o suture to connect the lymphatic to a vein so that you can get around the traffic jam to bypass the um, the area of blockage. That only works if you have functional lymphatics. If the lymphatics are not working, this is not going to work. It's just like if you have a traffic jam and the car's not moving, it doesn't matter if you provide a bypass, the cars are not going to get off the highway. The second procedure that uh, we offer is a, what's called a vascularized lymph node transplant. Basically, what you do is you take lymph nodes from one part of the body. Uh, the ones I use are, uh, are uh, what's called supraclavicular above the neck or some mental under the chin. And you transplant that to the arm or leg. And what, what it does, it acts like a pump. It sucks the fluid away and dumps it into the vein. It truly is, is a transplant. You, you take these lymph nodes and reconnect the blood vessels. Um, so these lymph nodes are alive and functioning. The second thing it does is also causes lymphogenesis. It, it helps produce new lymphatics in the area that can help drain the limb. And I take these lymph nodes from the neck because the chance of developing lymphedema after harvesting these lymph nodes from the neck area is very minimal. We used to take them from the groin, but um, as you know, the lymph nodes in the groin drain the leg. So the worst thing you do is you take lymph nodes from the groin and transplant it to someone's arm, but you cause them to, to uh, get lymphedema in their leg. So I have abandoned taking lymph nodes from the groin unless um, there's special cases, uh, but mo most of the time I use lymph nodes from the head and neck area. And the other thing that we do is also combine these procedures at the same time. So a lot of my patients are getting the lymphovenous bypass and the lymph node transplant in one surgery at the same time. You get the, kind of get the best of both worlds. And then lastly, for the excisional procedures, um, I usually reserve that for later stage lymphedema. This includes liposuction to remove the fatty component of lymphedema, and then direct excision where you actually excise the lymphedeminous tissue and, and remove it. There's another procedure that is called, we call it the Charles procedure. That's the eponym for the procedure. But basically what that is, is it's a radical procedure. It's for really for patients that are at end stage lymphedema uh, who really have no other options. And what you do is you excise all the lymphedeminous tissue down to the, the muscle and fascia, and then you skin graft the, the leg. It's a very, um, it's a very, uh, it's a procedure that has a lot of risk as well as there's a lot of deformity from the procedure, but patients who have the procedure benefit significantly from the procedure. Um, I had a patient who after the procedure was able to drive their car for the first time in their life. 
in, or, or sorry, in 15 years. They weren't able to get into a car and drive because their legs were so big. But after the procedure, they were a- actually able to drive. So a lot of these procedures really improve the quality of life in our in our patients. All right, everyone, that is the end of part one. We will pick up part two with immediate lymphatic reconstruction. And go ahead and download. It should be immediately available. And let us know what you think on Instagram. Make sure and follow us to get in the loop. Thank you.